Vice President Mike Pence destroys Kamala Harris in the VP debate, the media comes to her defense, and we discuss the biblical support for being pro-life. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is the God of Freedom Show. This show is sponsored by Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. If you always wanted to start a podcast but just didn't know where to begin, Anchor is definitely for you. All you got to do is just um, go to the website at anchor.fm or download the app. And um, you can basically you can record your audio from your phone or computer, then edit it from your phone or computer, and then post it. Um, you can also monetize it by having um, sponsorships. And you can um, add a second support button to raise funds for your podcast. You can also distribute to many other podcast listening sites like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Definitely check it out. It is and it's all for free. Definitely check it out if you want to start a podcast. Alrighty, so I hope everyone inside themselves a great week. Happy Saturday. So before I get to kind of the VP debate and all what that whole thing was about, I'm gonna give you a quick update on what you know how President Trump is doing in terms of COVID. Because I as you know, like last week I broke the news, or not, not I broke news, but um, news broke last week that President Trump was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, and everything he had to end up going to the hospital um, in Washington, D.C., but I mean, he's back at the White House, he's seen to be doing fine and everything, and he's been, latest I've heard, he's been cleared for doing, you know, public um, speaking events and all that, so that's all, all good news. He didn't seem to get terrible in terms of the sickness or anything. Um, he got, from what I saw, he probably was on uh, oxygen for a little bit and maybe had a high fever. But other than that, but he wasn't like just on his deathbed as what, what it seemed like some of the media really wanted. Because he kept questioning on um, what exactly was his condition. Like, the doctors there were telling him, um, he's just seem to be doing fine, I mean, he's doing well, he's responding to the meds and everything. But the media kept asking, like, what, is, is he, is, was he ever on oxygen? Was he ever on oxygen? Did he ever have a fever? It's like, they wanted, they almost wanted him to get worse. They wanted him to get bad. And now, um, they want to basically invoke the 25th Amendment on him because he was sick. He had a cold, pretty much. Because, I mean, think about that for a second. You're going to move a guy from the presidency all because he got sick. With nothing, nothing like terminal, nothing seriously deadly to right now, for him at least. It was just basically almost a cold for him. And you're going to move him, want to try to move him from for that? Really? And they keep trying to make these, because the medicine that he was given has been proven time and time again to really tone down the, you know, COVID's kind of infection rate and everything, how it affects your body and everything and all that. And the media ran a lot of stories on this too, saying that this works, this works. But President Trump takes it, they're saying, well, the side effects that can affect the mind. So that's why... He should, he should probably resign. Which tells you that they don't think they have a great shot 
at the election um, in November because, I mean, why would they be talking about removing him from office when the election is literally just like a few weeks away? That doesn't make sense to me. Which leads us to the uh, VP debate. So last week I discussed the um, presidential debate, which was just a crap show all the way through. So it's like Trump and Biden were both terrible. Chris Wallace was terrible in it. It really it hurt Trump more than anything because I mean, all he did during the during the debate was just constantly, constantly, constantly talk over Biden and never not, not letting him get a word in, get a word in, not a word. And same for Chris Wallace. And that's a problem. People, like, people saying, "Oh, well, that's the way he works. That's his genius. That's how he won 2016." No, the best. Again, it's not 2016. This is 2020, and Biden is not Hillary Clinton. So you can't compare these two years. We have is two completely different realities than um, <clears throat> compared to each other. So, because my my condition is like. The best thing he could have done is let Biden talk. Because the more Biden talks, the worse he looks. Because, I mean, Biden's just not there. He's, he's a liar in, in a lot of ways. He's had a lot of lies in that debate. Saying that America is a systematically racist country. That cops are systematically racist and everything. And he just, all sorts of lies. And said that Antifa was just an idea, not a group, despite... <laughs> Antifa literally, ev there's evidence of Antifa literally being a group, and the White House recently um, announced them as a uh, terrorist, or terrorist organization because of just all the stuff they've been doing over the past few years. So, but, you know, Trump being Trump didn't let him speak when he should have. And that was a big, big mistake on his part. So, but, what in the world? Something pop up on the screen right here. But anyways, the VP debate, on the other hand, was fantastic. Was really, really fantastic in a lot of ways. Mostly because Pence is not, like, Trump in any way. He's very calm, but he's very articulate in his kind of manner and how he speaks and everything, but he knows how to land the gut punches, too. So it was really, he did a really fantastic job. So here's actually a little clip, kind of, uh, kind of describing, and kind of give you uh, an idea on what, on what this debate was like, and like how Pence performed and everything. Here's the video right here. So yeah, but that's pretty much what the debate was like. You know, Pence just dismantled Kamala Harris all the way through, all the way through. 
I mean, Harris looked terrible. Terrible. I mean, I'll get to that in just a little bit. But I'm going to kind of give you a small recap of it in terms of the kind of clips there were and everything. But I'm only going to do the first, like, two topics. Uh, the first one was over, of course, COVID-19. The second one was over the economy. And I'm going to give you kind of the question and what Harris said and then what um, Pence said in response. So here's uh, the first clip right here. Let's begin with the ongoing pandemic that has cost our country so much. Senator Harris, the coronavirus is not under control. Over the past week, Johns Hopkins reports that 39 states have had more COVID cases over the past seven days than in the week before. Nine states have set new records. Even if a vaccine is released soon, the next administration will face hard choices. What would a Biden administration do in January and February that a Trump administration wouldn't do? Would you impose new lockdowns for businesses and schools and hotspots? A federal mandate to wear masks? You have two minutes to respond without interruption. Thank you, Susan. Well, the American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. And here are the facts. 210,000 dead people in our country in just the last several months. Over 7 million people who have contracted this disease. One in five businesses closed. We're looking at frontline workers who have been treated like sacrificial workers. We are looking at over 30 million people who in the last several months had to file for unemployment. And here's the thing. On January 28th, the vice president and the president were informed about the nature of this pandemic. They were informed that it's lethal in consequence, that it is airborne, that it will affect young people, and that it would be contracted because it is airborne. And they knew what was happening and they didn't tell you. Can you imagine if you knew on January 28th, as opposed to March 13th, what they knew, what you might have done to prepare? They knew and they covered it up. The president said it was a hoax. They minimized the seriousness of it. The president said, you're on one side of his ledger. If you wear a mask, you're on the other side of his ledger if you don't. And in spite of all of that, today they still don't have a plan. They still don't have a plan. Well, Joe Biden does. And our plan is about what we need to do around a national strategy for contact tracing, for testing, for administration of the vaccine, and making sure that it will be free for all. That is the plan that Joe Biden has and that I have, knowing that we have to get a hold of what has been going on and we need to save our country. And Joe Biden is the best leader to do that. And frankly, this administration Thank has forfeited Thank you, their right Harris. to reelection based Thank on this. Thank you, Senator Harris. So, yeah, I mean, notice how she didn't even answer the question. I'm like, what exactly? When they put in lockdowns or anything? I'm pretty much saying, you know, we're going to impose plans on, you know, improving contact tracing and testing and, and, and also produce, like, pushed produ production for the vaccine. Strange. Because it's almost like what the Trump administration is doing right now. 
That's literally what they're doing right now. And Pence, you know, says as much. He actually calls out Kamala Harris on that. Here's what that looked like. Right here. Here's a video. And our nation has gone through a very challenging time this year. But I want the American people to know that from the very first day, President Donald Trump has put the health of America first. Before, there were more than five cases in the United States, all people who had returned from China. President Donald Trump did what no other American president had ever done, and that was he suspended all travel from China, the second largest economy in the world. Now, Senator Joe Biden opposed that decision. He said it was xenophobic and hysterical. But I can tell you, having led the White House Coronavirus Task Force, that that decision alone by President Trump bought us invaluable time to stand up the greatest national mobilization since World War II. And I believe it saved hundreds of thousands of American lives. Because with that time, we were able to reinvent testing. More than 115 million tests have been done to date. We were able to see to the delivery of billions of supplies so our doctors and nurses had the resources support they needed. And we began, really, before the month of February was our, to develop a vaccine and to develop medicines and therapeutics that have been saving lives all along the way. And under President Trump's leadership, Operation Warp Speed, we believe, will have literally tens of millions of doses of a vaccine before the end of this year. The reality is, when you look at the Biden plan, it reads an awful lot like what President Trump and I and our task force have been doing every step of the way. I mean, quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. And I think. Uh, good on Pence right there. And notice how it just like is on a split screen right there. And just look at Harris during it. Like she just looks just kind of the smirking, like, like and all that, that kind of like just. She looked, she looked terrible during, during this debate. And this was the same same ordeal all throughout the entire debate. Like, she just smirked and just all sorts of stuff. So now we get to the economy and what this was about right here. So here is the first clip of the question and what Harris responded to right here. Here's a video right here. You know, that's a good segue into our third topic, segue. which is about the economy. This has been another aspect of life for Americans that's been so affected by this coronavirus. We have a jobs crisis brewing. On Friday, we learned that the unemployment rate had declined to 7.9% in September, but the job growth had stalled. And that was before the latest round of layoffs and furloughs in the airline industry at Disney and elsewhere. Hundreds of thousands of discouraged workers have stopped looking for work. Nearly 11 million jobs that existed at the beginning of the year haven't been replaced. Those hardest hit include Latinos, blacks, and women. Senator Harris, the Biden-Harris campaign has proposed new programs to boost the economy, and you would pay for that new spending by raising $4 trillion in taxes on wealthy individuals and corporations. Some economists warn that could curb entrepreneurial ventures that fuel growth and create jobs. Would raising taxes put the recovery at risk? And you have two minutes to answer uninterrupted. Thank you. Um, 
On the issue of the economy, I, th I think there couldn't be a more fundamental difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Joe Biden believes you measure the health and the strength of America's economy based on the health and the strength of the American worker and the American family. On the other hand, you have Donald Trump, who measures the strength of the economy based on how rich people are doing, which is why he passed a tax bill benefiting the top 1% and the biggest corporations of America, leading mm -hmm. to a $2 trillion deficit that the American people are going to have to pay for. On day one, Joe Biden will repeal that tax bill. He'll get rid of it. So, yeah, Ms. said on day one, they're going to raise taxes because that's what's happened. If you repeal a tax cut, guess what? Taxes go up. And Biden has said that many, 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 many times. And Kamala Harris has said, you know, we're not going to raise your taxes. We're not going to raise your taxes. That's, that's a lie. That's a lie. No, when you, again, when you get rid of a tax cut, naturally the taxes don't stay right there. They go up to where, where they originally were. So, and Pence, of course, you know, said as much as well. So here's what he had to say about it. And here's his response right here. When President Trump and I took office, America had gone through the slowest economic recovery since the Great Depression. It was when Joe Biden was vice president, they tried to tax and spend and regulate and bail our way back to a growing economy. President Trump cut taxes across the board. Despite what uh, Senator Harris says, the average American family of four had $2,000 in savings and taxes. And with the rise in wages that occurred, most predominantly for blue-collar, hardworking Americans, the average household income for a family of four increased by $4,000 following President Trump's tax cuts. But America, you just heard Senator Harris tell you, on day one, Joe Biden's going to raise your taxes. I mean, he's not lying right there. That's exactly what happened right there. I mean, pretty much the entire debate was like this. Just Pence just dismantling Kamala Harris all, all the way through. Especially on, you know, the Supreme Court, for example. You know, she refused to answer whether or not they'll pack the court and all that. But, you know, I'll continue on with that just a little bit. But first, you got to go over to YouTube or the God of Freedom blog to check it out. So not only you get the rest of the, the, rest of the topic for the episode... But also, towards the end, where I go over, just going over the book of John, and also the good stuff and bad stuff of the week. And remember, you can find me on your um, favorite podcast listening sites, like Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. This is The God and Freedom Show. So let's uh, continue on right here. So again, you know, like I said, Kamala Harris just looked terrible all throughout. And you can tell that she just, that Pence was just completely dismantling her, like, what she was planning on saying and everything. And you could tell that because the the way, the what she was responding with. So she kept saying all throughout, saying, don't interrupt me. 
Vice President, don't direct me. I'm speaking. I'm speaking. Like, kind of displaying herself as some kind of victim to mansplaining or whatever. I'll get to that. The media response to that in just a little bit. But again, like, that's just that's how it was all throughout the debate. So, and Pence did a fantastic job. He was straight on point with all the pretty much answers. He answered the question that he wanted to answer and even, you know, asked uh, Kamala Harris a question. And, you know, he had facts to back up his um, his um, answers to. And on top of that, he was calm, very calm all throughout. So I'm kind of wondering, like, why hasn't Pence been out in the campaign trail more than what he has been? He should, he because just the way seeing his performance in that debate, that's exactly what the Trump administration could be without the craziness and wildness of Trump. If Trump were to take it down just a little bit, this would look like this is what it would look like right here. And it's fantastic. It is really fantastic. So I, I just don't I just don't get why he's not out there more. And I'm kind of in the joke saying like, is there a possibility that he can be in a place of Trump for the debates? Because really Pence really highlighted the problem with the Biden Harris campaign is that you know, Biden's try to highlight himself as some kind of moderate and that he is a Democratic Party, he is in control. Nah, he is far from in control and he's far from a moderate moderate. And Kamala Harris, you know, she was portrayed by the media as a conservative but moderate. Seriously, like that's what the media portrayed her as when uh Biden picked her. And at the same time, back in 2019, she was labeled as the most liberal uh, senator on the Senate. So you can't have it both ways. And obviously from her ideas, she is very, <laughs> very far to the left. Very far to the left. You know, she sponsored the Green New Deal. She, she's a club bus, really one of the first sponsors of the Green New Deal. And that's what came up too, the Green New Deal during the kind of environment. The... Um, uh, the moderator asked Kamal Harris, saying, you know, you say that you're not going to vote the Green New Deal or anything, but on your website, it says, it highlights all things that are coming from the Green New Deal. So, what's going on here? And Kamal Harris completely kind of threw that aside and saying, we're not going to vote the Green New Deal. And Pence rightly called her out on that. So... And it's all a complete lie. All a complete lie. And she you know, lied about the Brianna Taylor case, saying that pretty much the jury uh, lied and the attorney general lied during on the evidence and everything, despite there being actual evidence that we saw <laughs> of the case. So that, is, that doesn't make sense or anything. And completely brushed aside the violence happening in the streets. And she, of course, Repeated a lie that Trump has never condemned white supremacy. Again, as a political line, he's condemned white supremacy over and over and over and over again over the years. So, yeah, I mean, seriously, you can tell from the debate that Pence clearly won. And how can you tell that? We'll just look at the media response. So, one of the top media responses to this, I'm not kidding was a fly. 
literally, there was a fly that flew on uh, Pissa's, my Pissa's head, and that was the main story, like, a fly steals a show. A fly f flies on Pence's, lands on Pissa's head. That was, or hair. That was the main story. And also, one of the biggest stories from it was, or the takeaways, was that Kamala Harris was mansplained to by Pence. Which tells you, again, that Kamala Harris got dismantled, got destroyed in this debate. Because they're pulling the mansplaining sexist race card and all that. So here's a piece from USA Today. It's titled, What Kamala Harris Put Up With. Analysis from mansplaining to repeated interruptions. Pence's treatment of Harris during VP debate shows challenges black women face and politics face. Yeah, this you can tell this piece is going to be fantastic. So here is the piece right here. As a black woman on a natural stage debating a white man, Senator, Senator Kamala Harris had to do more than offer her vision for America on Wednesday night. Harris, the first woman of color to... to the first woman of color chosen to join a major party ticket was expected not only to follow the explicit, ru explicit rules of the vice, pres vice presidential debate, but also the spoken rules of her gender and race. To be calm and collective in the face of disrespect and to resist emotionally and as a black woman to especially resist anger. Vice President Mike Pence was not tasked with walking that tightrope. He broke even the most basic rules, repeatedly trying to bulldoze Harris, ignore the moderator's, moderator Susan Page's authority, who despite the impression of some viewers, was able to give Harris and Pence nearly identical speaking time. In spite of some estimates, Harris actually got more speaking time <laughs> during the debate. Moderator Susan, Susan Page, how she felt about debate. I mean, that's that's linked to her article, whatever. Experts in gender and political science say Harris had to temper herself, place herself, to tread carefully in ways Pence did not. Many women who watched the debate saw an all too familiar spectacle of sexism and racism. This, this debate, this is by its own name, Glennon Doyle. This debate is evidence that white men do not have to follow the rules while women have to win by win follow, while following them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. It's I mean, seriously. He yes, yes, he interrupts her, but that's the debate. That has happened many, many times in debates. That's that's not the first time that's happened. But since it happened to Kamala Harris, who's a black woman. Ooh, that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing. He's a sexist and a racist. She had to prove last night that she was qualified to be president of the United States. And that's one of the challenges that women fa do face in a different way than men. There is an exception of qualities that are given to men who run for office. And women who have to prove their qualifications. Said W. Walsh, director of the Center for Making Women in Politics at Rutger, Rutgers, Rutgers, whatever, the university. Unfortunately, this is still the case for women, especially with the racist trope of, a, of the angry black woman, and particularly 
complicated for women of color. It's particularly complicated for women of color. So this is a tweet from Benjamin Dreyer, and here's what he said. I'm really worried about, I'm worried, sorry, I'm really worried that Kamala here, Kamala will be aggressive in a way that, that, in a way people can't quite put the finger on, but somehow don't like. Is it possible that maybe she's just dislikable? Is that possible? Because she is pretty dislikable, and that has nothing to do with her gender or race. She is just off-putting in many ways, just her biopolitics and snotty attitude. In a lot of ways, she's, she's just a snob. She's really a snob in many ways. And again, it's not because of her race and gender, I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I've watched her during the base of the, during the primaries, and now. It's, it's, it's very clear. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure if a conservative black woman were to be the P nominee or even the presidential nominee and was interrupted during the debate, I'm pretty sure these people would be saying, saying the same thing. I'm so sure they're doing the same thing. I'm sure if Candace Owens runs for president and she's interrupted during the debate, I'm sure they're going to defend her, go on all defense on her, saying that she's a victim of mansplaining. I'm sure. I'm so sure they're going to do that. Harris was also facing, facing a challenger who holds conservative views of women. Pence has said he doesn't dine alone women with women, and women A's can't stay late with him at work. In the late 90s, he published an op-ed arguing women shouldn't serve in the military. Okay, so the biggest, the horrible thing that Pence believes in that he doesn't dine alone with women, or that his A's don't stay late with him at work. Ooh, that is so terrible and evil right there. How terrible. He only dines, he doesn't dine alone with women. As long as if he has had his wife with him. Or alternatively, that's just how, this is respect he shows to his wife and everything. He does it and all that. Which is perfectly fine. And there's many controversies around women serving in the military. I'm not saying that they shouldn't. And I think there's many ways that women can serve in the military. But, you know, there's controversy around them being in combat. I mean, I know this is very, very controversial. But there's kind of problems with them being in combat because men have a natural tendency to want to protect women. So, it can lead to problems with, you know, their kind of executing a plan or whatever. But, again, it's, it's, it's controversy. It's a long-time discussion, and I'm not really 100% sure on my view on it either. That, that just so thought that, you know, I never really came up with it, but I, I saw it before. But again, you know, there's plenty of women who are qualified to serve in the military too, so I mean, that's just, again, that's an ongoing debate. Anyways, it continues right here. Reports about Pence's practices around women <laughs> suggest that much like Trump, women for him are not equals. Uh-huh, so he doesn't dine, because he doesn't dine alone with women without his wife, he doesn't see them as equals. Okay. Harris' position, Harris's position was um, inevitable because the playing field was ne never level. 
Harris, Harris experts say needed to be strong, but appropriately, appropriately uh, differential. As a black woman, she needed to especially avoid appearing bad-tempered. Not only did she need a command of the issues, but she had to also keep close command of herself. This is from a um, tweet by someone named Miss Aja or something like that. For those all wondering why Senator Harris didn't go all out crazy on Pence, America judges, judges women differently. They especially judge black women differently. She had to, to thread a very specific needle tonight, and she did a fabulous job. Bravo, Senator Harris. Mm, she actually did a fabulous job, all right. Here we are in 2020, women and people of color are still confronted with these stereotypes. You have to think very hard all the time. How is this going to be taken? Am I smiling enough? Am I not smiling? Is my voice too high? Am I talking too fast? Am I appearing too angry? Is that what I'm wearing to to be seen as a school school monitor to Zexy? Watch that. When when are uh, when you are a woman running at the highest level, and you are a black woman, there is an overlay of double standards that is really taxing and something that is part of a calculus all the time. Academic research suggests that black women are disproportionately, disproportionately regarded as, by white audiences as too angry, too loud, too aggressive. Harris had a fine line to walk. Experts agree Harris had a solid debate form that's strong, forceful, and knowledgeable. But the work of navigating sexist and racial stereotypes means she also could not completely be completely authentic and something Walsh had said can ultimately hold women back since authenticity, goodness, whatever, is often what voters seek. Apparently I can't read. All right, it continues right here with, what in the world, with the topic of mansplaining. On social media, users remarked that Pence had, at times, appeared to be mansplaining, a term used to describe when a man explains something to a woman in a condescending way, when he either doesn't know anything about it or knows far less than the woman he is talking to. Okay. When Paige asked about the killing of Breonna Taylor, Pence said it was an insult to the police officers across the country for Joe Biden and Harris to say there is implicit bias in the criminal justice system. Okay, I mean, Biden has said that. Harris has said that many times. Where's the lie? Harris was unequivocally and unequivocal in her response. I would not sit here and be lectured by the vice president and what it means to enforce the laws of our country. I'm only, I'm the only one on the stage who has personally prosecuted every, everything from child sexual assault to homicide. She said, referring to her time as a prosecutor. Walsh said moments like that resonated, especially with women. A lot of women around the country could feel the certain level of mansplaining going on, going on and she responded to, to it in a forcible, clear way. 
She's yeah, she responded to that assertion by saying, I was a prosecutor. How dare you say that I, I believe that law enforcement are implicitly biased against blacks, even though I said it many times. And Biden has said it many times. Goodness gracious. This is exactly what the media was doing all over all over the news that night. They were saying that Harris was a victim of mansplaining and racism and sexism, and there was a fly in his head. That's how you can tell that Harris, I mean, sorry, Pence won. Pence clearly, clearly won debate. So, where do we go from here? So, in terms of where we go, um, I don't personally think anything really much changed from this, just because of just how divided this country is at this point. Didn't move the needle a little bit, I'm sure of it, but not, not by bunch. So, what really needs to happen is that whenever the next debate is, I don't know when, if there's going to be a next debate, um, Trump really needs to tone it down and really let Biden speak. Let him speak his ideas and let him talk. Because, again, more Biden talks, the worse he looks. And trust me, people will look at him and say, well, he speak like the way he ideas is spewing. I mean, I don't want that. Let, let's just vote for Trump. And I still think you know Trump will will win in the election. But as of right now, if the polls are right, he's not in a good place <laughs> for that. And I stress if the polls are right. But um, again, really nothing changes. I just hope really the Trump campaign needs to get their act together really, really fast. And again, maybe have Pence out more and Trump kind of tone it down a little bit. That would definitely help in a lot of ways. And try, sorry, hold on a second. And they really, really need to try to point all attention to Biden and Harris, to their radicalism and their ideas, because when that, whenever when that happens, the chances for Trump to win for winning goes up. So that's what what they really need to focus on from here on to the election. All right. So in terms, speaking of kind of Biden and his radical ideas, and then this was this is something crazy that came out right here. I can. Scroll down a little bit. Anyways, so there's been a lot of like expectations and just hesitancy about the Supreme Court nominee and like, like when when what Amy Coney Barrett be confirmed and everything. And the biggest fear coming out of leftists is that her vote that she'll be voted to overturn Ruby Wade if she is when she's confirmed. Which again and he's like, happened. Roe v. Wade was a horrible, decided decision. There's nothing, nothing in the Constitution, none, nothing in the amendments that have been established that protects a woman's right to murder the baby. There's nothing, nothing in the Constitution about that. So, basically, the Supreme Court during then decided to write that in. That's the problem with the Supreme Court. Like they, there's many times when they just write in laws 
or writing what they think the law means, not what it means. And with with um, so that's why Ruby Wade needs to be overturned. And not only that, it's the idea that it is it's completely evil and immoral to make it to where it's legal in the law of the land to murder your baby. So, but here's what Joe Biden has to say about that. So, Joe Biden says that if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court and she votes to overturn Ruby Wade, that he'll make it law of the land. That he'll pass an executive order or a constitutional amendment or whatever. That Not like he has the power to do that anyways. That he'll do something to make that law of the land anyways. Which... It's pretty telling. It's pretty, really telling right there. I mean, again, if Ruby Wade is overturned, it's not going to make abortion automatically illegal. It will be allow states to make it illegal, which it's a good thing. Abortion should be illegal all throughout the United States. It should, but unfortunately, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But it definitely should, and I hope it does. But the prop, what I would really focus on in this part right here. Is that there seem to be Christians, followers of Christ, who are falling for this? Who are falling for saying, "Well, Trump is so like Biden is so more calmer. I'm going to support him." Yes, I mean yes, he says you know he wants to make Ruby Wade the law of the land, the abortion law of the land, but you know, oh well, oh well. I don't like Trump. Trump's an orange mean bad man, and that's a problem. And there's this whole now new movement coming out, especially from woke evangelical evangelicals. It's called pro all life. That means if you if you support illegal immigration, you're not pro all life. And you're and that's and that whole thing. So it really doesn't make sense right there. So their idea of pro all life is that. We need to have a system that gives people privilege, pre, but a socialist system. That's how we reach the utopia or the righteous system that we need to help people, help people in need. Which is completely untrue. Socialism is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. None. It doesn't. Nothing in the Bible says that we need to give money to the, the government. Needs to take our money. And give it to someone else. That's stealing. That's completely stealing. That goes against one of the t- many, actually a couple of ten, sorry, a couple of the Ten Commandments. And when Jesus says, you know, give and help the needy and the poor, that means, you know, that needs to come out of your heart. It needs to, you know, be a cheerful giver and freely give. Not to be coerced into giving, but freely give. And with a capitalist country, that's possible. Is capitalism perfectly righteous? No, it's not. So, but again, the same thing. Now they're these woke evangelical pro all life Christians, so called, are now saying that abortion, oh, it's not, it's not a big deal. I mean, there's nothing about what it says. Anything about abortion, so it's not a big deal or anything. I'll get to that in just a little bit. But here's a this I got a couple articles right here. And one is from The Nation. 
and one is from uh, what is this rewire news group i'm just going to read the one for the nation first so here's what this was at. this is kind of a um q a type deal this is a titled a christian a christian argument for abortion a q a with rebecca todd peters Abortion is a moral issue, just not just not in the way we've been taught, argues Rebecca Todd Peters, an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church and professor of religious studies at Elon University. She also is the author of a new book, Trust Women, a progressive Christian argument for reproductive justice. Rather than <clears throat> sorry, rather than an abstract moral question. She argues, abortion is a morally valid option to a concrete question women face on a regular basis. What should I do when I face an unplanned, unwanted, and medically compromised or medically compromised pregnancy? Right now, much of our society seems unable to let women answer the question for themselves. Peters attributes that state of things to misogynic and patriarchal ideas of womanhood that judge motherhood to be a moral end that supersedes all others. Peter pull, Peter's pulls no punches against Christianity, she, which she holds responsible for shaping many of these cultural norms. As an alternative, Peter's, offer, Peter's offers a moral framework and a language of progressive Christianity and built on a foundation of reproductive, reproductive Justice, an inter intersectional approach conceptualized by a small cohort of black women activists in the 1990s that recognizes the complexity of women's reproductive lives within, within the context of a specific, specific woman's life. The moral consequences of having a child can be equal to, if not greater than the moral consequences of having an abortion. Oh, really? So having a child, giving birth to a child, is more morally consequential than killing the child? How does that make, that doesn't make sense whatsoever. <laughs> None. Nothing. Anyways, continues right here. And in so many cases, in, in, sorry, and so in many cases, she argues Abortion can be a morally good decision. A morally good decision. I recently spoke with Peters about the book and her vision for the role of progressive feminist Christian theology in the contemporary abortion debates. The following interview has been drafted, has been edited for Lincoln and Clarity. So, we got a whole entire new theology, if you will, for Christianity. It's called feminist Christian theology, just like kind of black liberation theology, but it's all from a role of a woman. The feminist progressive view, which is, what I'm seeing, is anti-biblical in many ways. So here's kind of the, a little bit of the interview. You begin the book with a description of your own abortion, abortion before diving into the philosophical, legal, and religious attitudes about women 
that shaped the con contemporary discourse around abortion. Why was it important for you to start from personal? It took me, sorry, she, she, she said, it took me a long time to make the, that decision to start from the personal. I've been working on this project for 25 years, but when I began specifically writing this book, in my sabbatical two years, it was an open question about whether or not I was going to talk about my personal experience. And for me, figuring, <clears throat> sorry, figuring out whether or not to do that was really about what I'm trying to do in the book. In the book, the whole argument is oriented around shifting the conversation from a justification framework to reproductive justice framework. And the point of reproductive justice framework is to say abortions are events in the, in the larger lives of women's reproductive experiences, and we can only understand them within the history of those lives. And women's stories are absent, sort of the sort of ordinary, uh, ordinary abortion that those stories are absent. So it felt important to have those stories, to normalize those stories, and to say abortion is a normal part of women's lives. It's a normal part of women's lives. That, that, was, that was absolutely the case for me in telling my story in a landscape for those stories, <clears throat> for the stories are so silent, seemed very important to me. Once I decided to, once I decided it was important to tell my story, opening with it was just an editorial decision in terms of the effectiveness of starting with a story as a way of confronting the silence. Here's another question. A significant portion of the book is spent on challenging the prodding, sorry, the prodding what you call the flawed moral discourse in public discussions of abortion that we're unable to recognize the bodily integrity of women because we are culturally conditioned to expect motherhood as a default outcome of a pregnancy. What would a better moral discourse look like? And she answered, that's when I'm, that's what I think of reproductive justice framework offices. I think it offers a counter-narrative and counter-framework. The simplicity of a reproductive justice framework is one of the, one of the strengths. The, the three principles that the movement identify, identifies as, as the right not to have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to, and the right to parent the child that we have. I think this was so powerful about the framework is that I recognize that what is so powerful about the fr that framework is that it recognizes that the issue is about parenting, families, and motherhood, and the right not to be mother, and the right to be a mother, and the right to raise our children in healthy, safe environments. A reproductive justice framework highlights the difficulties women face when they do have children and raising those children in a country that tolerates obscene levels of poverty, obscene levels of racism, damage and to vulnerable children and families. So it's putting abortion back into context rather than isolating it, she, um, the questionnaire asked. Yes, right. I think that's the problem that I ident identify with the justification framework is that it forces public kind of force forces public conversation into this narrow morally moral binary abstract question is abortion right or wrong and that's the wrong starting point abortion is never is only ever their answer to a question to a question a woman faces about what should i do 
when I have an un unplanned or medically fragile pregnancy? That's the question. What should I do? That's an absolutely moral question. One one of the things I really want to lift up in this book <clears throat> book is abortion is definitely a moral issue. Because it's a, it's a moral issue within the context of women's lives, where women make more decisions about their sexuality all the time, having a child, I argue, is a larger more larger moral issue than having an abortion because because of the moral requirements, motherhood and <clears throat> Are enormous. So that's pretty much what this all this whole piece is about: is her justification of making abortion like that is morally right. The abortion is morally right. That's what she's trying to explain in this book and this in this piece. And it's completely wrong and evil in so many ways. It's not biblical for a so-called Christian. This is unbiblical. Very unbiblical from her point of view. Now, she's apparently a minister. If she holds this view on abortion, really? So here's a another piece from the Rewire News Group. It's titled Pro-Choice and Christian. How I Unlearned What My Church Taught Me. It's if someone feels like ending their pregnancy is what they need to do, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to, and no reason why God would, would look down on them for it. Growing up, church, church leaders taught me taught me a lot of things the world agrees with that with just aren't right according to God. Two people with the same sex should, again, should not get married, sex before marriage is off the table, and one definitely should not get an abortion. Reinforced by both church leaders and my family, these views have a huge impact on me, had, had a huge impact, impact on me during my adolescence. Little did I know that my opinions on these issues would change so dramatically as to gain a better understanding of our society. It is, it also became clear to me over the time that the world agrees with the thinking of the dead that church. This might help, or, uh, sorry, it also became clear to me over over time that the world agrees with the thinking of that church, despite how harmful these the views are, are the views are that it holds. My church definitely was a very conservative and even even traditional church. It played contemporary music, and people wore jeans during Sunday service. We even handed out water bottles to the activists protesting outside of the church where the pastors for the past homophobic comments, yet this kindness was actually made the church's teachings even worse. The, church, the church's message, message environment seemed accepted by ironically, never truly embraced what fell outside the church approved values and lifestyles. Instead, for example, accepting LGBTQ, LGBTQ people as they are, Pastors and other members of the staff will open their arms and say they accept their flaws and that God loves them and loves them even though they are flawed. These believers may see the mindset as a way of being accepted, but what they really are saying is that they will accept you, <clears throat> that they will accept all of you, accept all of you, accept the part of, that they believe to be harmful or of a sinful nature.
when you grow up in a ch- in, in the church, the pastor, the pastors, and others at the top tell you what's right based on what's supposedly aligned with the word of God. This makes it easier for them to dismiss an opposing view where that comes from becomes prevalent in society because to them it is of the world or deception to Satan. I would even hear my pastor say that we should stay strong in our beliefs, and even if we are called something a phobe, a phobe, or accused of having any type of prejudice, I believe these things are so long, especially when it came to abortion. Growing up, I went to a private Christian school from, sorry, goodness gracious, I can't speak. Growing up, I went to a private Christian school from elementary school up until my sophomore year of high school. Most of the people who attended this, that school were pretty conservative in the environment, so the environment was definitely enhanced in my way of thinking. It wasn't until I got to college that I really started talking to people of various points of view. Points of view. My, my RA had a friend who was an intern at a local Planned Parenthood. She and I hung out a few times and started to have conversations about feminism, the wage gap, and even abortion. She started a club on campus called Fem, where a group of us girls would talk about such topics and also just hang out and have fun. Even though I didn't end up staying involved in this club, I did continue learning about feminism and what it really means to one call oneself a feminist. I started getting into a feminist medium, began educating myself on the issues. I I then realized how wrong my how just wrong my way of thinking around reproductive rights really was. From Cecile Richards to YouTubers like Hannah Winston, Winton, and Ryan Dennis. These women, these women really held my eyes open just how misinfor- how much mis- misinformation is spread by my communities when I learned that abortion is not an act of murder that, that goes against God. It will simply put a medical procedure that every person should have the right to. My mindset completely changed. Abortion isn't this hum- inhumane act that deserves the stigma, the stig- sorry, the stigma it has. It's a healthcare service that allows people to live the life they like to live. If someone feels like any of their pregnancy, what is what they need to do? There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to, and no reason why God will look down on them for it. Despite the numerous legislators in the United States and the leaders around the world continuing to lay them access to abortion care, like. Like some church leaders, many lawmakers and other officials have determined to stop people from making these citizens about their life and they and the family the family they want. That includes LGBTQ people. So basically what this piece piece goes on about is that she was raised in the church with the Christian views and everything, but she went to college and saw what the world all around said about these issues and that she's saying that wait I was wrong on this because the world tells me the world tells me that these things are right that abortion is just a healthcare service and so like as she like as she said earlier is that the the church her church says that 
we need to be firm in our beliefs and everything not falling into the trap of the world or in Satan. That's exactly what scripture teaches us to do. Let's, let's jump to Romans 12 2. If I can get it open. Yeah, Romans 12.2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern that what is discern what is the will of God, and what is good, and what is settle, acceptable, and what is perfect. So, basically what it's saying is that you gotta concern, you gotta do not conform to the world. Renew your mind, and like, have your viewpoints for the from the perspective of what what God what God says, so this is exactly the opposite of what this person is doing. Like she falls into the world's trap and said, "No, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but this is right. Abortion is still right. No, it's not. Abortion is far, far from right. Far from it. It is horrible and evil. It's not just a medical service." It's a horrible, violent act. Act, And scripture is very clear on this. Yes, it doesn't mention abortion specifically, but there's plenty of passages and verses in scripture that suggest that life it begins at, a, at exception and that it matters to God. So first, let's jump to Isaiah 43 1. So Isaiah Isaiah 43 1 says, But now but now thus says the Lord who he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I for I have redeemed you, redeemed you. I have called you my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, and they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be, be burned, and, and sh the flame shall not consume you. So it's very clear that from this passage that, you know, God, we matter to God, even as he formed us. And it's very clear in Psalms, in Psalms, Psalms 139. Psalms 139, 13 through 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, secret, and intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your in your book, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed from me, and what, when as yet, there was none of them. So this is very clear right here. You know, God formed us. He said, you know, 
we are formed in the womb. Like God already decided who we're going to be as he created us in the womb, as we were developed in the womb. And we were fearfully and wonderfully made by him. So that just tells you that the child inside the womb of the mother, despite being unborn, is still life, according to God. And this is very clear in, in Luke, in the book on the Gospel of Luke, when um, John the Baptist, who was just um, who was an unborn baby inside Elizabeth's uh, womb, leaped, leap, leap in, leap in joy when he was near Jesus. So here is what this is verses so chapter one, verses thirty-nine to forty-four. There we go. A few days later, Mary sorry, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill um hill country of Judea to down where Elizabeth, um, Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with <coughs> excuse me. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was, gave the glad cry, exclaiming to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do that, do what he said. So, like John the Baptist, just the fetus inside Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy, jumped, to, jumped for joy when he sensed Jesus in Mary's womb. Yeah, just a clump of cells, just a clump of cells, uh-huh. And now we go to the most important part aspect right here that separates us, humanity, from all other animals. So we jump to all the way to the beginning. Genesis 1.26. Sorry. 1.26. And here is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have domination over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image he created them created him, male and female he created them. So the idea of being made in the image of God is that we sorry, one second. Sorry, my throat's a little dry right there. But again, with, with being made in an image of God, we are given what's called the breath of life from God. And that's what separates us from the animals, other animals. And that's why we are so unique to God. And that's why we matter so much to God, even in the womb. So the idea that God will be okay with abortion is completely nonsense. 
That doesn't mean he'll forgive the woman for going after the abortion. He, of course he will. He, he forgives anyone who confesses and repents. And that's where kind of we at the church need to step up from because there are some of the church who had a tendency to kind of um, shun the women who have an abortion. Like shun them away and disown them pretty much. And that's not what we're called to do. Yes, we're, we just said we, we had to call out sin for what it is. Abortion, getting abortion, it's sin. It is murder. But at the same time, we do need to give our hand out to women who are struggling. Even if, they, if they're struggling with their choice of, of, of getting an abortion, there's many women, many women, who struggle with, with it, with that decision after they get it. So that's where we as a church need do not shun them away, but bring them in with staying true to scripture, of course, but bring them in and give them love and support in any way, shape, or form. That's exactly what we're called to do in the church. That's what Christ says. But again, in the idea, the idea that we, that, that Christianity needs to be reformed in order to accept all these things is not true. We do not need, we do not, again, we're not to conform, we're not, we are called not to conform to the world. Not in any way. So, these woke evangelicals need to really renew their minds and repent and come back to what scripture actually says. That, that is just plain simple right there. All right. So now let's move on to the book of John now. Back to the book of John. Or not back, but to the book of John. So we are in 20, um, chapter 20 in John. So this is about the resurrection, and maybe you can follow me along if you want as well. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the tomb had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, that the one whom Jesus loved. She said, the, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we didn't know where they had put him. Put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple <laughs> outran Peter and reached the tomb. I love how John put that in there, because the, he described himself like that disciple Jesus loved. I love how John put the other disciple, Peter and the other disciple was running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Kind of like, you know, that's pretty funny right there. He stooped down and looked in and saw the linen wrapped wrappings lying there, and he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived, arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen, the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had had covered Jesus, Jesus' head was folded up and lined apart from the other wrappings. 
Then it's that boy who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still had to understand what the scriptures, the scriptures that Jesus must arise from the dead. And they went, on, went home. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she looked, she stood, she, she stooped and looked in. She saw the two white robes, she saw, saw she saw two white, two white robed angels, one sitting at the head of the, at the, goodness, I can't breathe. Sorry guys. She saw two white robed angels, one sitting at, sitting at the head and the other uh, at the foot of the place where Jesus, where the body of Jesus had been laying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels ask her. Because they have taken, they have taken the, my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. Sir, if you had taken him away, tell me where you have and put him, and I'll, I'll go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned... She turned to him and cried out, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher, don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I, I have yet, I haven't yet ascended to heaven, to the, uh, sorry, I haven't yet, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers, my brothers, and tell them I am ascending to my Father, and your, and your Father to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene found disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then they, she gave them his message. Alrighty. So we'll continue on with the rest of 20 next week. Yeah, we're going to finish up 20 next week. Alrighty. So now let's move on to the Goose of Ambassador of the Week. So it's the Goose of the Week. Um, the Chosen has now started filming Season 2, which is... Fantastic. Again, if y'all not seen The Chosen, definitely, definitely watch it. In fact, I'm going to play a, a little trailer for it just to see, to show y'all how cool it is. Here's the trailer right here. Let me tell you a story. You think that impossible things can happen? Miracles. I can never forget what I saw. I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't actually know your name. I'm Jesus. Are you dangerous? Maybe to some. I saw him. It was incredible. I need to know if we have a problem. The man claimed to be God. False prophecy. Again, I ask you, is there a problem? The so-called miracle worker? Jesus of Nazareth. Apparently something good can come from Nazareth. <laughs> If we are going to have a question and answer session, every time we do something you're not used to, it's going to be a very annoying time together for all of us. There are righteous men on the lookout for you, and they are weighing every word you say. 
not for you. This is different. Get used to different. We didn't choose him. He chose us. I see you. Oh, I really don't like that man. Follow me, and you'll see more. I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. And so it's time. Let's go. Yeah, so again, if you have not seen the show, definitely go watch it. You can go to the Chosen app and watch it, watch it for free. As an app is for you too. And of course, if you like it, definitely look to pay it forward to like, support them financially. But you can also find it on YouTube if you know somehow you can get the app as well. But still, check it out. Check out the show. But anyways, you know they start a film season two, and I just, it looks really. I can't wait to see what it's about. So they're in Utah, and apparently they're going to be going into Jerusalem, and in this season. So I can't wait to see what exactly it's going to be about. So it should be coming out next year, apparently. So looking forward to that. Alright, so I'll be back here next week with all the latest. My name is John Clinton, and this is the God of Freedom Show. If you enjoyed this episode of the God of Freedom Show, hit that like button and follow the page to get more content. You can also find me on your favorite podcast listening sites like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening or watching.